no, no, no. I don't want goat yoga. I just want to sit in a bucket of goats. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Danielle Yet, and today we're continuing our series with our resident senior member in theology, Nick Ansel. Nick teaches many courses at ICS on topics ranging from evil to classical and open theism and beyond. One thing Nick loves is to read the Bible with people, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, in order to see what new thing it has to say as we live our lives here and now. Nick has a gift for seeing the Bible as a living word, so we're excited in this series to spend some time chatting with Nick about some of the ways the Bible comes alive for him. Nick's course, God, Sex, Word, Flesh, touches on theologies of embodiment, gender, and sexuality. You can find more information about that course on our website, and today's the day we talk more with Nick about these topics, so let's get started. Today we have Nick Ansel back in the virtual studio with us to continue our series on key topics in biblical studies and theology. We're going to be using Nick's class, God, Sex, Word, Flesh, to discuss the themes of embodiment, gender, and sexuality in the Bible. So let's dive in. So as a bit of background, when you were getting your master's degree at ICS, you wrote your thesis on the work of Rosemary Radford Ruther. Uh, an American feminist theologian who started writing in the late 60s. And since you've already mentioned this a few times now, since the idea of someone journeying along with the biblical text or kind of any meaningful text is important to you, I wonder if you could, at the outset of this, narrate a bit of your own journey for us. So first, why you thought it was worth paying attention to Ruther's work in the first place when you were beginning your academic career, and then how your initial work has kind of stuck with you and continued to influence you over the years, and then maybe ending up telling us what questions in feminist theology you're still struck by now. Great. So one of the things I, I sort of taken to recommending to students in my classes, ICS junior members, is 
you need to find your constructive obsession. I don't just say find your obsession because that could be a little bit too open, <laughs> but um, constructive obsession. And it, yeah, it's in an academic context of looking for things to work on and so forth. And I use the word obsession because you've really got to um, care very, very deeply about certain questions, topics, figures, or whatever, um, to, to have the energy to do all the work that you need to do as an academic, because there's so much of your life will try and get in the way of you really devoting significant quality time to your work. So if you're obsessed with something, you make room for it in your life. That's what you do. Obsession is a, is a good word for that, I think. So my constructive obsession early on was feminism. And it started a number of years before I came to ICS. So I came to the ICS in 86, and this would have started in 1980 or 81 or something like that. And um, I just went to a particular seminar at the Greenbelt Festival in the UK. And the speaker, who's someone I really respected and continued to respect, was a fellow named Graham Cray, who's now a bishop, actually, in the Anglican Church. He did a seminar on what was then called biblical feminism or evangelical feminism. And it just kind of blew my mind. And it's like, within the course of about an hour, I'd kind of changed my mind on all, all kinds of topics. So it started with the whole adventure of biblical interpretation in relation to gender. And uh, a number of evangelicals were, were starting to call themselves feminists. Now, that seemed like a new thing. Actually, if you go back into the history of the women's movement, you find all kinds of evangelicals were actually involved very early on. And one of the important roots of the women's movement in, in the United States was actually the temperance movement. And there were all kinds of uh, Christians involved in that, Christian women and so forth. But biblical interpretation became the starting point. And I, you know, I read the kind of literature that was around at the time. There's, there's a very important book that came out in the mid 70s originally, and it, it went through several editions. I think I know of at least four. It was All We're Meant to Be, it was the main title, and it was by Letha Scanzoni and Nancy Hardesty. So that was a very important text, but there were a lot of texts like that starting to come out. And from issues in biblical interpretation, I kind of branched out into other concerns about gender. And I started reading not just material that had been written by Christians, but I started reading the feminist texts themselves. And so I started to connect to non-Christian thought in many cases and finding a kind of kinship with what was being explored. That was so important for me as a still a pretty young Christian to feel some kind of affinity, well, very strong affinity to what other human beings really cared about were exploring. They didn't necessarily share my faith, but I was very open to their struggles. So when I came to ICS, I ended up doing a lot of my sort of research papers for different courses on issues of gender and sexuality, as well as biblical interpretation. And it was quite natural for me to pick Rosemary Ruther as a very significant feminist theologian whose work 
I chose to get to grips with in terms of the thesis. Um, so when you started digging into feminist thought more broadly and then Ruth more specifically, what came out of that for you? Well, Rosemary Ruther's attitude to scripture was, was one of the things I, I kind of wrestled with. So in terms of scripture, for her, there's biblical material that's very positive for feminist concerns, and there's material that's negative. So you get a, a kind of a discrimination on feminist grounds between what's in scripture that is inspiring and, and in touch with our authentic humanity and then material that she thinks is not in touch. So the scriptures are not a norm, they are a, a resource, you could say, an important resource, but you have a, a way of discriminating within your primary sources, as it were, for what is on the side of life and what is something that you have to struggle against. So scripture itself is ambiguous. And I felt I needed to really work that through and that encouraged me to dig even deeper into issues of hermeneutics. The other thing I found with uh, Ruther is, I mean, she has an important work that was published in 1983, I think it was, called Sexism and God Talk, Towards a Feminist Theology is the subtitle. And it's basically exploring the contours of a systematic theology from a Christian feminist uh, perspective. And it was one of the very first works to actually attempt getting into the arena of systematic theology. And I found that in working through that, I found that I was interested in systematic theology as well. Previously, I'd been working in philosophical theology, but it was like I was quite hooked by systematic theology. I found all of the topics of systematic theology, especially because they were being explored with a gender focus, to be very interesting. And there were some real surprises. So as a Catholic feminist, Ruther had a significant chapter on Mariology, which for me is a sort of Protestant evangelical, I'd not really considered. And it, it was like, it's actually a very, very interesting topic. And some of the most intriguing feminist work in theology that's going on today is actually in Mariology. And I continue to be quite fascinated by that. The other thing I remember being an issue for me is trying to figure out whether Ruther held to what you'd call a sex unity position, which would be that we are persons first and foremost, and however you want to designate gender, that's secondary, as it were. It's like the, the common humanity is ontologically deeper and more primary than the issue of the male-female by unity or something like that. And feminist thought has, has not always answered those kind of questions the same way. Many feminists have stressed the fundamental humanity of women and men as a path to open up liberation. But around about this time, I also connected with some of the thinking that Mary Stuart Van Loon was doing. And she's a you know, friend of ICS and was at Calvin College at the time, I believe. And um, she was talking about what she called differentiating feminism, which is feminist thought that actually wanted to explore the difference between men and women, what implications that might have for a feminist vision. So I brought that into conversation with my reading of Rosemary Ruther, and that was quite a rich thing to do. I should just say that one of the main things that Ruther sparked for me is 
she paid attention to a particular biblical text, which is Jeremiah 31, 22, only in passing, more or less. But it gave me my title for my thesis so that it was published as well later on by University Press of America in 1994, I think. But the title was The Woman Will Overcome the Warrior. And that was my slight tweaking of one of the ways of translating the Jeremiah text, which could also be translated, the woman will surround the man. Now, the word for man is a very strong word, so you, it is used of warriors. And the verb for to surround can also be understood as to overcome. So I went with the woman will overcome the warrior. And it was Rosemary that put me onto that. She knew that that text was really, really significant. And I've been off and on, I've been exploring it ever since. Yeah, I actually had the title of that book of yours that you just mentioned in mind when I was thinking about the question that I wanted to ask next, which was, you've mentioned that Rosemary Ruther has remained influential in how you think about not only this topic, but a lot of other topics, it seems. You've mentioned your interest in hermeneutics and from the conversations we have had I can see how trying to find a way in which scripture is not to be just dismissed, but to be understood in a different way has been a consistent thread for you. But one thing that I personally have noticed in your various writings, when it does touch on gender or sexuality and theology, is that you try to highlight this subversive role of women, which is often a thing that gets highlighted in feminist theology, I think. But I'm interested in I think the nature of this subversion, because you mentioned one of the things you had an issue with early on with Rosemary's work was her highlighting texts that were useful and texts that were a problem and dealing with scripture as a resource rather than a norm. And you mentioned this Jeremiah example. So I'm just wondering if you could walk us through how we could understand the text being understood subversively in the moment when it was written so historically, but then also how we're to carry that forward to today. Yes, this Jeremiah text is it's subversive of our standard interpretations of how we think gender symbolism works in the Bible. So the text itself can be translated like this. For Yahweh has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encompasses or surrounds a man. So while several different interpretations and translations have been suggested for this saying, and that's got a lot to do with the fact that the Hebrew verb that's placed between woman and man is a bit unusual in this context. There's actually a number of leading Jeremiah scholars have concluded that there's a clear reference to lovemaking. And that reading, that understanding of the woman surrounding the man, fits extremely well with a motif that runs through Jeremiah, the bride-bridegroom motif. And that, that motif actually frames this text because it occurs in chapter 25, verse 10, which is just before the text, and chapter 33, verses 10 through 11, which is just afterwards. And for those of you that are taking notes, you can also find it in chapter 7, verse 34, and chapter 16, verse 9. So there are four main places where it occurs, but the last two are on either side of the woman surrounds the man text. 
And what the refrain basically does is it says there's this sorrow over the fact that the sound of joy between the bride and the bridegroom has disappeared from Jerusalem. But in the final reference, that joy comes back. So if you situate this saying about the woman surrounding the man, which is really, it's a proverb, which is quite interesting, a proverb embedded in a prophetic context. So the new thing that Jeremiah talks about, that's how the text starts, right? For Yahweh has created a new thing on the earth, a woman surrounds a man. So what's new about this? Well, the new thing on earth seems to refer to a time when patriarchal androcentric ways of defining the covenant between the sexes are overcome. So the word that's used for man has got clear connotations of strength and virility. But if you connect this to the new covenant and God's embrace of Israel as also being a new thing, it's the woman who represents the divine. Yahweh embraces Israel in the new covenant. So the new thing between the sexes points to the new covenant between God and humanity. But if you look for the alignment, the alignment is between the man and Israel and between the woman and Yahweh. So the woman will overcome the warrior. And then you can explore this theme a lot more because you have these other texts in Jeremiah which talk about the warriors of Israel being terrified in the context of war and being defeated. And the woman that surrounds the man is seen as the woman who will provide comfort for the warrior. And that's how God will show up. God will be a woman in that context. And we don't expect to find this in scripture for some reason, but it's there, right? So gender is a central category for Jeremiah here. And the subversion of normal expectations is going on. It's a very, very powerful text, and it really fits in to these deep themes of Jeremiah. So the new covenant between female and male that's being envisioned here would symbolize, that means it, it would really embody as well as point to the new covenant between God and humanity that's so well known in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, which is incredibly important for, for scripture as a whole. And then more recently, I've been able to tie this into some material in the book of Proverbs, where I think that this is actually echoed in Proverbs uh, chapter 30. So, uh, Well, it's interesting because I think I've asked you this question before in relation to the Proverbs passage in particular, and it's come up again for me now. Like you mentioned that you don't expect that kind of an understanding of God in scripture for some reason, that the idea of the feminine symbolism seems strange to us there, but I can think of many examples outside of scripture where considering the divine to be revealed in female figures is quite a strong symbolism. So you think of capital R romantic notions of you know women being a revelation to men. And you've mentioned in one of our previous episodes, the dangers of putting something on a pedestal. And I feel like that understanding of you know the woman is there to comfort the man and to give like a revelation to the man, that kind of a thing, can also somehow get into dangerous territory. So I wonder if there's a way of avoiding that when you're saying what you're saying. Yeah, the question about the putting on the pedestal is, is very interesting and important because in interpersonal relationships, 
if someone puts you on a pedestal, it can be hard to detect, actually, and it can seem like it's a step away from gender oppression to get into a kind of a romanticism. Ruther herself actually analyzes contemporary feminism with a very interesting typology, and she actually looks at romanticism as, as a key category for this. And there's conservative romanticism that's anti-feminist, but then there are forms of romanticism that are taken up into feminism. And she has very nuanced uh, analysis of, of that, just to tie that back into the richness of her work. Maybe I can explore with an example of another reading of a text that's uh, subversive, you could say, and then see if I can tie that back into the pedestal problem. So when I first got into reading material uh, that was part of the evangelical feminist, biblical feminist kind of movement, one of the texts that was given significant attention was in Genesis, where Eve is referred to as a helper. And the challenge was that woman as helper was interpreted as woman as a kind of assistant, personal assistant or something like that, maybe very important, very indispensable, but in a fundamental sense, secondary. She's there to help the man. So the man is center stage. And the counter argument to that used to run something like this. The Hebrew word for helper occurs 21 times in the Hebrew Bible. Of the 21, 16 occurrences refer to an equal, and five occurrences refer to a superior. No instances refer to an inferior. Therefore, we're on safe ground if we say that Eve being described as a helper is referring to an equal in Genesis. So that was the argument. The word can actually mean superior, but most of the time it means equal. It never refers to inferior. So I say, yes, equal, let's go for that. So that used to be my, my interpretation of Genesis. Now, when it comes to the meaning of certain terms, I actually have backed away from looking at, oh, this is the range of meaning via a Hebrew lexicon. And I've started to look at what the terms mean in the particular canonical unit that we're, we're looking at. It might be the, the actual biblical book, which would be Genesis here. Or it might be the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible that are grouped together. And what you find is the other occurrences of the word translated as helper in the Pentateuch outside of Genesis 3 all refer to God. So I actually then started to wonder whether Eve, as it were, represents God to the man, Adam who then represents humanity. So you have the problem with male generics, right? It's like, instead of humanity, people used to talk about mankind, and that's very problematic. But there is a sense in which Adam represents humanity as a whole that's not androcentric, because Eve represents God in relation to humanity. So a similar kind of gender symbolism going on, that I was exploring in relation to the, Je the Jeremiah text. And this, of course, initially sounds very speculative. So I'm going to back this up. So the first part of the argument is all of the other references to a helper in the Pentateuch refer to God. 
So let's explore if it's the case that Eve is being associated with God in some way, and that the man is associated not just with humanity, but humanity in need. And if you look for a humanity in need motif, you do find it right there in Genesis. And it's reinforced with the languages. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will cling to his woman, is kind of how that goes in the Hebrew. And the verb for to cling to is always used of a weaker clinging to a stronger. So the man represents humanity in need of God. And a core way in which Adam finds this is with Eve. But that is telling us the story of humanity's need for God. But the woman in this instance is symbolizing and representing and making present the divine. So how do we back that up a bit further? I want to actually look at the connection with Ezekiel. Adam and Eve have to leave the Garden of Eden, and they have to leave the territory of Eden. So the Garden is a garden in Eden. It's not just a Garden of Eden. And they leave heading east. In Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 19, if you want to look this up, Ezekiel sees the glory of God leaving the temple. In what direction does the glory leave? The glory of God, the divine glory, heads east. If you look ahead to Ezekiel 43, we realize the divine glory has not gone up to heaven, but has gone with Israel into exile. Because when Israel returns, the glory returns to the temple, again through the east gate. Now, this is in part alluding back to Genesis and leaving the garden and heading east, so the east gate, as, as it were. It's very interesting that the narrative in Genesis says that it's Adam who leaves, and it's using what seems to have been established as a name now for the male for Adam and Eve together. But it doesn't say Adam and Eve. It just says Adam. Adam leaves. And that's at the end of chapter three. And then like the first verse of chapter four, it refers to Eve being with him once they're outside of Eden. And what that is saying, if you connect that with the Ezekiel material about the glory, what this means is that Eve is being identified with the Shekinah. The word Shekinah is not part of biblical Hebrew, but is the name for the divine glory. A little bit later in the Jewish tradition, Eve is the glory. Now, think of Paul. When Paul says the man is the head of the woman, and woman is the glory of man. So what's so interesting is if you take Paul's reference to glory as a reference to God, the divine glory, then woman is the glory of man is talking about the woman being God to the man. And uh, you're then free to say the man is God to the woman in terms of being head, but the woman is God to the man in terms of being glory. And it, that actually gives you a whole other angle on that key text in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, it doesn't put woman on a pedestal, 
it's referring not to her embodying higher ethereal kind of values or something so that Adam can say to Eve, oh, you complete me or something like that. <laughs> Much as that's a wonderful line in that particular film. She represents power. It's the power of care towards the man who is in need, right? But, it, but it's a reference to power. It's not a reference to a, a feminine compliment to, you know, a man that's not quite complete, but is still the central kind of figure or something like that. So it identifies the woman with the divine present and says, as a woman, she embodies the divine. So she's in the image of God and in the likeness of God in a very deep and profound way in her own right in relation to the man. And I think that you can read that such that men cannot put women on a pedestal, uh, but need to get in touch with their own need. They need to get in touch with their own need. And to put someone on a pedestal is always a power move where you're trying to get the other person under your control in some very devious, uh, indirect kind of way by idealizing them so that they are not allowed to be themselves and to confront you, as it were, with who they are, which might be wonderfully surprising, but is going to be, in a good sense, challenging. So, so far, you've been speaking about the deep revelatory connection between human embodiment and understanding who God is and understanding who ourselves are, that kind of a spiral, if you will. And I wonder, what do you think the great variety of human bodies and sexualities and genders in the world has the potential to teach us about God, so moving in that direction? Yes, it's very important to talk about bodies, plural, and not just the body, as it were, which can be a bit abstract. It's fine if the body is a sort of shorthand for bodies, um, and it can be. Same, sexualities, genders, and to connect well, an infinite diversity, you could say, with God and with with the presence of God. I mean, I think that this fits with a strong view of incarnation. Now, you know, most Christians are going to say, "Oh, yes, incarnation is terribly important," but incarnation is something that we are perhaps in the habit of trying to limit that to Jesus because. Jesus is the word made flesh. I like to say Jesus is God in flesh and blood. And we recognize that, celebrate that, but it can kind of stop there. I mean, there's this phrase, the body of Christ, right, which shows up in Paul's writings. And it's a familiar term. So it's easy to sort of not really ask yourself, well, what actually does it mean? So the body of Christ. I think means the fleshing out of Christ in history. And we are a part of that. We are that. Uh, we're called to it. In Colossians, Paul actually talks about himself filling up what is still lacking with respect to Christ's suffering. It's one of these very interesting phrases. And he has an expansive 
and expanded understanding of who Christ is that I think does then connect to uh, this idea of the body of Christ, the, the fleshing out of Christ. And this is connected to God becoming all in all, which again, that language, we get that from Paul. I mean, the theme itself shows up elsewhere. John has his own way of exploring the all in all theme, but he doesn't use that language. If we think of the uh, the prologue to John's gospel, there is the phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's very, very familiar text. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, you know, if you're around someone that, you know, is a little bit of Greek, sooner or later, they'll tell you, oh, did you know that the dwelt among alludes to the Greek for tabernacle? So it means uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And it's a reference to the tabernacle, which is the precursor of the temple. Uh, a bit later in, in John's gospel, Jesus says, and again, a very well-known verse, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you may be where I am. And then in my father's house, there are many mansions, many rooms or, or many dwellings. In my father's house, is often interpreted as heaven but within john's gospel it refers to the temple because in john chapter 2 jesus refers to his father's house and that is the temple so jesus is is that connection point but it's connected to god becoming all in all in paul's language so john gets at this with his with his temple theology so incarnation you could say it starts with Jesus, but it mustn't stop with Jesus. So that then all of the facets of our humanity become ways in which God dwells with us and is present to us and within us and between us. I don't know if this is exactly the question I want to ask, but I'm going to get it out there in hopes that something comes of it. So I think it goes back to the question of discernment. So the sheer existence of variety, is there anything other than like variety itself that that points to? Is there something that the particular varieties point to about God? I still don't even know if that's what I want to ask, but we'll go with it. I think it's good to approach the, the question of variety from another angle and ask the wisdom question, which is the discernment question, because we also need to figure out I mean, there are varieties of evil, there are varieties of brokenness. So the mere awareness of variety doesn't automatically mean that we are tuning into life and to the call to life. And gender and sexuality um, get caught up in our discussions of essentialism and anti-essentialism often. And one way to maybe break through the deadlock there is to think in terms of both gender and sexuality, uh, which includes issues of sexual orientation and, and all kinds of issues, as to do with calling. So finding one's calling from God, who is and is becoming all in all. And to be a man, let's say, means to find your calling as a man. It's not an essence. That's a misconstrual of what, what's going on. You're called to be a man, let's say, possibly. 
And that then needs to open up a pathway in your life, which has certain contours to it. And looking at it that way as a calling gets us out of a potential straitjacket and then the um, reactions to the straitjacket. There's an interesting text in Ephesians, and it's Ephesians 4, verse 7 through to the end of 10. And Paul says, For each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So I think what's going on there is Jesus's journey, you could say, brings the divine presence with him. Jesus is the cutting edge of the divine presence, especially in passing through death and out the other side. And in so doing, God becomes all in all. What that does is it extends the presence of God and extends the presence of God in and through death and beyond. And it deepens and seals the covenant between God and creation so that God and creation in a covenantal sense become one. So Jesus follows this path that he's been given and which he embraces. It's the same with all of us in that our particular path that we've been given, we too extend the presence of God into our reality as the very fabric and spirit of our lives in terms of the diversity that comes from God. That doesn't mean every possible diversity is part of this because there are, is a diversity to brokenness, there's a diversity to evil and to things going awry. But every possible diversity that could be an expression of the, the presence of, of God is part of that cosmic embodiment in which we don't just simply say, here I am, but it's to pursue the calling of who you truly are and who you are called to become, that that is a part of God becoming all in all, which is part of Jesus becoming all in all, which is part of the body of Christ becoming all in all. I mean, all of these things are, are interwoven and sexuality, sexualities, body, bodies, gender, genders are part of this dynamic. And you don't find out what it means to be a woman, let us say, aside from finding out what it means for God to be a woman. Now, that's an unusual way of putting it, but there are, there are connection points with what I've been saying to what is absolutely a part of very traditional Christian spirituality. You can go into the theology of the saints and, and so forth as well to explore this. You can go into Mariology to explore this. I mean, there's, there's different areas that will appeal to some people more than others and will feel closer to home. Uh, so you have very on topic a uh, course called God, Sex, Word, Flesh that gets into some of these areas. 
as we wrap up our episode, is there uh, anything more you would like to add about that course? Yeah. So I'll say something about the title, actually, God, Sex, Word, Flesh. And if you check out the description online, you'll see that there's a forward slash between those words, God, forward slash, sex, word, flesh. And in the description, I ask a series of questions, actually. So I say, how is our agenda or theology related to our gender? Is God, G-O-D, a male word? Uh, and then further questions, is the word made flesh, biblical phrase, of course, a male God? Because Jesus is male, does that mean that God is male? And, and another question, how does the experience of women change how God is known? I actually phrase it how God is made known as well. So how is God made known and how is God known? And then the final question in this particular list is sexuality or are sexualities plural embraced by the resurrection? And then the final part says, attentive to the work of feminist theologians, biblical scholars and philosophers will attempt to develop an embodied theology open to the biblical vision that God will be all in all. So people are welcome to check out the rest of the description <laughs> online. And what should be clear from the fuller description is we're going to look at some material that isn't just theoretical academic material as well. We have a chance to explore a work of fiction and a work of autobiography as well. And that's in part a way of saying if you care about gender, if you care about spirituality and embodiment, then it's caring about that that's important for being part of this conversation. So you open the course up with all of these questions and, you know, welcome students, you know, with those questions and with others. What do you hope someone who takes this course would walk away from the course with? Well, yeah, if you take it, what can you take from it? And there's a story that I heard years ago, and I, I love this story, and it comes to me now in this context. There's a woman, and she goes for an interview at one of the top universities in the UK. Maybe it's Oxbridge, and has to have an interview with one of the professors. And the professor is very arrogant. He's just got his feet up on the desk, and he's reading a newspaper. He doesn't really want to be involved in interviewing these prospective students at all. But he sort of peers over the top of his newspaper and just says, OK, well, impress me, and then goes back to reading the newspaper. And the way the story goes is that what this prospective student does is she sets fire to the newspaper. <laughs> so surprise me, right? Impress me. I'd like to be surprised. It's not just surprising me, but be part of the surprise for yourself and set fire to something. So I started off at the beginning by talking about finding a constructive obsession, right, to give you the energy for academic study and so forth. And this connects to it. Set fire to something, because that could be the fire that we associate with the Spirit of God.
And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what's your pleasure? Well, Danielle, my pleasure this week is the internet and the way in which a child, me, growing up in the 90s, can sort of find what childhood was like archived on the internet. (laughs) Um, So, the other day, I was thinking about this song, um, which is quite inappropriate, but it's something I learned when I was in grade five and listened to when I was in grade five, I guess, called The Bad Touch by the Bloodhound Gang. And it's not so much the song that brings me back to that time, but a particular computer application, which is this sort of screensaver-like thing that you could download and watch these monkeys crawl all over your screen and then pee on it. (laughs) It was very strange. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I thought, I wonder if I can find this still. And so I searched it up on Reddit, and lo and behold, I found the peeing monkeys. Someone had done the beautiful work of digging it up from the internet archive and sharing it for the rest of us on Reddit. So yeah, my pleasure is finding weird stuff from your childhood that you're like, hmm. That was quite the use of technology. Or you're like, hmm, this explains so much of who I am now. <laughs> I mean, do we have to choose one of those answers? <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so my pleasure this week is an Instagram account, actually. So there's a lady who her Instagram handle is Anne of all trades. And... She's basically this like lady who's kind of become a homestead farmer hmm. from like, you know, living in Seattle okay. to like moving out somewhere else and then starting a farm out in like Kentucky, I think they are or something. And initially how I stumbled across this account was uh, our friend Julia, I think, sent me a picture one time of a little baby goat named Milk Dud. And it was like a runt goat and it was super tiny and they weren't sure if they were going to make it. And then it was this whole Instagram saga. And then it was just so adorable. Um, And he, you know, grafted on successfully to some other mother and like is now a very thriving, not baby goat. That's something. That is something. But so I've been, you know, hooked since then, basically. And it's apparently kidding season again. So the next batch of baby goats have just started to come into the world. And so it's just baby goat palooza <laughs> now. Like there's just constant little video snippets of these fresh, teeny, tiny, fuzzy little things just learning to like hop around and like being carried around in buckets. There's like a bucket full of goats. Oh, wow. A bucket. I would be very very happy to just be in contact with a bucket full of baby goats. So that has been my pleasure. That's it for our show this week. If you're interested in hearing more from Nick and in joining any of his upcoming courses, which are all now available remotely, You can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. 
If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Tell your friends.